Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, a pair of silk stockings by Kate Chopin. Uh, you said there was an alternative pronunciation. Well, some people Chopin, Chopin, and some people Chopin, pronounce Chopin. Yeah. And some people pronounce it Chopin. You know, it's right. Creole is the name. Her husband was Creole. So how French is this pronunciation? I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Someone undoubtedly is sure, but I'm not that person. <laughs> well, she probably knew. <laughs> she probably knew how she pronounced it. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Um, we did uh, an, another story by her uh, a while ago called uh, Desiree's Baby. And that one has a lot of... Uh, accents on the Desiree, so it tells you how to pronounce it. Um, we're not so lucky here. However, um, I get the sense that this is not set in the bayou. I get this sense this is set in New York or Chicago or something like that. Uh, does it say anywhere? Do you remember? It does not. It no. does not. But um, it, it could be set, in fact, in New Orleans, which is where the Awakening is set um, and where Chopin lived. Uh, the Awakening, which is her most famous work, is a, a short, powerful novel from 1899. And this is a story from 1897. So uh, it, this could work out. And uh, as as we'll see, she goes into a store that ex- of a sort that from its the brief physical description could well have existed in New Orleans in 1897. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason so, yeah. to suppose it's elsewhere. Yeah, I pulled this out of uh, I, I I was thinking very cosmopolitan cosmopolitanly because I pulled this out of a magazine called Vogue where it was first published in the 16th of September 1897 issue. Vogue went on to be a pretty famous magazine. I think it's still around or some something it like is. it, some website it, it or something. Um, and I believe um, they have lots of international versions, and that's actually right here in the. Uh, Original, there's um, a little note on the table of contents saying, Vogue is regularly on sale by every fine class news dealer throughout the United States, Canada, Mexico, Alaska, Japan. Sold also in the chief cities of the Great Britain, continental Europe, India, South America, Australia. Principal dealers outside in New York and Brooklyn are, and then a very long list of places you can order Vogue from. Uh that's a bit unusual, I think. Um, international magazines uh, being international at the end of the 19th century, it it happened, but it it was not super common. Um, today, I think of Vogue as entirely a fashion sort of outlet, but um, and that's sort of related to what's going on here. But it it was not exactly like that at at this time. Indeed. So. Um, I propose you uh, read it for us, and then maybe we'll come back and talk about the context. Okay. A pair of silk stockings. Little Mrs. Summers one day found herself the unexpected possessor of $15. It seemed to her a very large amount of money, and the, the way in which it stuffed and bulged her worn old portemonnaie gave her a feeling of importance such as she had not enjoyed for years. The question of investment was one that occupied her greatly. For a day or two, she worked about apparently in a dreamy state, 
but really absorbed in speculation and calculation. She did not wish to act hastily to do anything that she might regret afterward, but it was during the still hours of the night when she lay awake revolving plans in her mind that she seemed to see her way clearly toward a proper and judicious use of the money. A dollar or two should be added to the price usually paid for Janie's shoes, which would ensure their lasting an appreciable time longer than they usually did. She would buy so and so many yards of percale for new shirtwaists for the boys and Janie and Mag. She had intended to make the old ones do by skillful patching. Mag should have another gown. She had seen some beautiful patterns, veritable bargains in the shop windows. And still there would be left enough for new stockings, two pairs apiece, and what darning that would save for a while. She would get caps for the boys and sailor hats for the girls. The vision of her little brood looking fresh and dainty and new for once in their lives excited her and made her restless and wakeful with anticipation. The neighbors sometimes talked of certain better days that little Mrs. Summers had known before she had ever thought of being Mrs. Summers. She herself indulged in no such morbid retrospection. She had no time, no second of time, to devote to the past. The needs of the present absorbed her every faculty. A vision of the future like some dim, gaunt monster sometimes appalled her, but luckily, tomorrow never comes." Mrs. Summers was one who knew the value of bargains. She could stand for hours making her way inch by inch toward the desired object that was selling below cost. She could elbow her way if need be. She had learned to clutch a piece of goods and hold it and stick to it with persistence and determination till her turn came to be served no matter when it came. But that day she was a little faint and tired. She had swallowed a light lunch. No. When she came to think of it, between getting the children fed and the place righted and preparing herself for the shopping bout, she had actually forgotten to eat any luncheon at all. She sat herself down upon a revolving stool before a counter that was comparatively deserted, trying to gather strength and courage to charge through an eager multitude that was besieging breastworks of shirting and figured lawn. An all-gone limp feeling had come over her, and she rested her head aimlessly upon the counter. She wore no gloves. By degrees, she grew aware that her hand had encountered something very soothing, very pleasant to touch. She looked down to see that her hand lay upon a pile of silk stockings. A placard nearby announced that they had been reduced in price from $2.50 to $1.98, and a young girl who stood behind the counter asked her if she wished to examine their line of silk hosiery. She smiled, just as if she had been asked to inspect a tiara of diamonds with the ultimate view of purchasing it. But she went on feeling the soft, shiny, luxurious things with both hands, now holding them up to see them glisten and to feel them glide serpent-like through her fingers. Two hectic blotches came suddenly into her pale cheeks. She looked up at the girl. Do you think there are any eight-and-a-halves among those? There were any number of eight-and-a-half. In fact, there were more than that size than any other Here was a light blue pair. There were some lavender, some all black and various shades of tan and gray. Mrs. Summers selected a black pair and looked at them very long and closely. She pretended to be examining their texture, which the clerk assured her was excellent. 
A dollar and 98 cents, she mused aloud. Well, I'll take this pair. She handed the girl a $5 bill and waited for her change and for her parcel. What a very small parcel it was. It seemed lost in the depths of her shabby old shopping bag. Mrs. Summers, after that, did not move in the direction of the bargain counter. She took the elevator, which carried her to an upper floor into the region of the ladies' waiting rooms. Here, in a retired corner, she exchanged her cotton stockings for the new silk ones, which she had just bought. She was not going through any acute mental process or reasoning with herself, nor was she striving to explain to her satisfaction the motive of her action. She was not thinking at all. She seemed for the time to be taking a rest from that laborious and fatiguing function and to have abandoned herself to some mechanical impulse that directed her actions and freed her of responsibility. How good was the touch of the raw silk to her flesh? She felt like lying back in the cushioned chair and reveling for a while in the luxury of it. She did for a little while. Then she replaced her shoes, rolled the cotton stockings together, and thrust them into her bag. After doing this, she crossed straight over to the shoe department and took her seat to be fitted. She was fastidious. The clerk could not make her out. He could not reconcile her shoes with her stockings. And she was not too easily pleased. She held back her skirts and turned her feet one way and her head another way as she glanced down at the polished pointed tipped boots. Her foot and ankle looked very pretty. She could not realize that they belonged to her and were part of herself. She wanted an excellent and stylish fit, she told the young fellow who served her, and she did not mind the difference of a dollar or two more in the price so long as she got what she desired. It was a long time since Mrs. Summers had been fitted with gloves. On rare occasions, when she had bought a pair, they were always bargains, so cheap that it would have been preposterous and unreasonable to have expected them to be fitted to the hand. Now she rested her elbow on the cushion of the glove counter, and a pretty pleasant young creature, delicate and deft of touch, drew a long-wristed kid over Mrs. Summers' hand. She smoothed it down over the wrist and buttoned it neatly, and both lost themselves for a second or two in admiring contemplation of the little symmetrical gloved hand. But there were other places where money might be spent. There were books and magazines piled up in the window of a stall a few paces down the street. Mrs. Summers bought two high-priced magazines, such as she had been accustomed to read in the days when she had been accustomed to do other pleasant things. She carried them without wrapping. As well as she could, she lifted her skirts at the crossings. Her stockings and boots and well-fitting gloves had worked marvels in her bearing, had given her a feeling of assurance, a sense of belonging to the well-dressed multitude. She was very hungry. Another time, she would have stilled the cravings for food until reaching her own home where she would have brewed herself a cup of tea and taken a snack of anything that was available. But the impulse that was guiding her would not suffer her to entertain any such thought. There was a restaurant at the corner. She had never entered its doors. From the outside, she had sometimes caught glimpses of spotless damask and shining crystal and soft-stepping waiters serving people of fashion. When she entered, her appearance created no surprise, 
no consternation as she had half feared it might. She seated herself at a small table alone and an attentive waiter at once approached to take her order. She did not want a profusion. She craved a nice and tasty bite, a half dozen blue points, a plump chop with cress, a something sweet, a creme frais, for example, a glass of Rhine wine, and after all, a small cup of black coffee. While waiting to be served, she removed her gloves very leisurely and laid them beside her. Then she picked up a magazine and glanced through it, cutting the pages with the blunt edge of her knife. It was all very agreeable. The damask was even more spotless than it had seemed through the window, and the crystal more sparkling. There were quiet ladies and gentlemen who did not notice her, lunching at the small tables like her own. A soft, pleasing strain of music could be heard, and a gentle breeze was blowing through the window she tasted a bite and she read a word or two and she sipped the amber wine and wiggled her toes in the silk stockings the price of it made no difference she counted the money out to the waiter and left an extra coin on his tray whereupon he bowed before her as before a princess of royal blood there was still money in her purse and her next temptation presented itself in the shape of a matinee poster. It was a little later when she entered the theater. The play had begun and the house seemed to her to be packed, but there were vacant seats here and there, and into one of them she was ushered between brilliantly dressed women who had gone there to kill time and eat candy and display their gaudy attire. There were many others who were there solely for the play and acting. It is safe to say there was no one present who bore quite the attitude which Mrs. Summers did to her surroundings. She gathered in the whole stage and players and people in one wide impression and absorbed it and enjoyed it. She laughed at the comedy and wept. She and the gaudy lady next to her wept over the tragedy. And they talked a little together over it. And the gaudy woman wiped her eyes and sniffed on a tiny square of filmy perfumed lace and passed little Mrs. Summers her box of candy. The play was over. The music ceased. The crowd filed out. It was like a dream ended. People scattered in all directions. Mrs. Summers went to the corner and waited for the cable car. A man with keen eyes who sat opposite to her seemed to like the study of her small, pale face. It puzzled him to decipher what he saw there. In truth, he saw nothing unless he were wizard enough to detect a poignant wish, a powerful longing that the cable car would never stop anywhere, but go on and on with her forever. Mm. A student uh, had this as an assignment uh, earlier uh, this year, and uh, that's what brought it back to my attention. I, I, I know we had done Chopin before, and uh, I recognize the title. I may have read this when I was in high school. I don't remember reading it, but I remember reading a lot like this. And uh, the one that stands out most to me like that is um, from the same era, different author. Um, it's one we've done on the podcast. It's uh, Mrs. Brill or Miss Brill mm -hmm. by uh, Catherine Mansfield. Yes. Um, 
and uh, women seem to be in a state <laughs> in this, uh, this genre, this period. Um, they need to be seen. They worry about how they're being seen. Um, and this is a tragic story like that one, Miss Brill is. But what's so funny is it's, you know, it's in vogue where, you know, I don't know that it's supposed to be seen as a tragedy. I think it's supposed to be seen as a luxury. You indulge yourself. But uh, really, to me, it's like um, she's she went crazy for a minute there. And that's sad. Um, and, you know, she she has a hard life, I guess, now compared to before when she was more free to do what she wants. She's got four kids at least, right? Two girls, two mm-hmm. boys. She's got $15, and it preys upon her mind. It keeps her sleepless. I, uh, I think a lot about this stuff, Eric. I think a lot about how our relationship to money is dangerous for us. It makes us spend our time doing the wrong things and that sort of thing. So I see this as probably a lot more tragic than I think you're supposed to see it as if you're a regular Vogue reader. Um, and out of context, out of the context of the magazine, um, I don't know what students are supposed to make out of, make of it. But uh, I am sure you have some thoughts. I do. Assuming that Vogue, uh, Vogue wasn't just a fashion magazine in those days, as you know, but assuming that Vogue had primarily a middle-class female readership. Mm-hmm. After all, fancy magazines like this were in fact luxury items as the story itself makes clear Mm -hmm. and they were luxury items for women who had the time to take boxes of candies to the theater Um, i think that this is there there are many important things to to be noted in this i think delicate and sensitive story Um, but one of things that we should note i think is that it is a profoundly feminist story um, it, it reminds me, though, in its lack of explicitness about its feminism, uh, Betty Friedan's point in The Feminine Mystique, that there is this malaise that doesn't have a name. Um, a huge difference between the story Miss Brill and the story A Pair of Silk Stockings is that Miss Brill is unmarried. Right. She is alone in the world. Miss Summers is not just Miss Summers. She is consistently little Miss Summers. Mrs. Summers. Mrs. Summers. I'm sorry. I beg your pardon. You're quite right. She is consistently little Mrs. Summers. She has been belittled by passing from the life that she had when she was single, presumably in the, the home of a father, and becoming the wife of someone, a Mr. Summers, who now, enough years later to have four children, uh, leaves her with insufficient funds to have the kind of life that she once had. But strong, accepting individual that she is, she doesn't let herself think of the past. And although the future is appalling, she 
maintains the false belief that the future never comes. Tomorrow never Mm -hmm. comes. Mm -hmm. In fact, tomorrow always comes. We all know that. And so we know she's fooling herself. Other people look at her and usually see her as little Mrs. Summers, impoverished, but making do. There is a relationship between time and money throughout this. She knew Mm -hmm. how to wait online. She knew how to bide her time. She thought of not having to darn socks as, or stockings as they're called here, not having to darn them as a way of preserving time. In modern America too, there's a direct relationship between time and money. The less money you have for real estate, the longer is going to be your commute, mm-hmm. right? You can trade time for money. If you can live in Manhattan, you then you don't have to spend commuting time, but you know, you'll pay three times as much as the same house would cost 80 miles away. Um, that's what's going on here. This woman has traded away her life. And so that last line, she wished that the cable car would go on and on with her forever, is a way of saying that she never wants to have to return mm-hmm. to the life that she is in in which her time is just someone else's to spend because she is little Mrs. Summers and she has to take care of the children. And although she does it with good grace, what kind of a life is this? Her future has been stolen and her best dream is to have no future at all. Now, I think this is a feminist story. And I think that what the editors of Vogue are doing is saying to their middle-class female readers, those of you who have enough money not to notice Mm. what kind of life women have are, are able to waste your time, spend your time with expensive sandwiches and other people's entertainment and eat your, your candy and even talk to strangers and read magazines like this one, but get nothing accomplished. Mm. That people like little Mrs. Summers have no choice but to get things accomplished. And there is not one image in this story of a woman who actually does something that the world would acknowledge as important. The, the End of the Awakening, a great novel, um, Anyone who has not read it and thinks he or she may, don't listen for the next 30 seconds. (laughs) But at the end of The Awakening, the the protagonist who has the same kind of malaise that little Mrs. Summers has here, although the protagonist there, Edna, tries to become an artist, um, swims off into the water and just swims off. Into the, into the Gulf of Mexico. She just swims off. She enacts what little Mrs. Summers wants mm. to let it go on with her forever. So I, I don't think that this is a story that, uh, that is to be read happily. I think, in fact, it is to be read tragically because it's, it's giving a narrative to a deep, and potent malaise that in 1897 doesn't have a name. But we would call it today patriarchy. Mm. And its antidote 
is anti-feminism. Mm. Excuse I'm me, think- is, is feminism. I'm thinking, um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a lady. <laughs> I don't have a lot of kids I need to darn socks for. I, I keep thinking about the uh, consumerism aspect of it, right? She, she's what do, doing what they call today retail therapy, right? Mm-hmm. She, she's. I'm going to read that opening paragraph again because it's important, of course. Uh, little Mrs. Summer, um, little Mrs. Summers, one day found herself the unexpected possessor of fifteen dollars. So she didn't think she was going to have fifteen dollars. Now she has fifteen dollars. Um, fifteen dollars was a lot of money back then. I noticed the price of the socks she buys. You know, it's like two bucks or whatever. But uh, they're silk, and they're expensive. And socks were more expensive uh, as a consumer good back then. But then she, uh, indulging in this luxury, she, she says, well, you know, this ugly old handbag I just put these into and the shoes and, yeah, I was planning on, you know, carefully spending this and making sure everybody looked nice for once. But she sort of like goes into a drug frenzy <laughs> and indulges yeah. in retail therapy, going to the uh, service counter and idly noticing that her hand is touching something soft. She's not wearing gloves. She puts, takes off her cotton socks, replaces them. Oh, that's luxurious, right? And then it sort of just like snowballs from there. And she, you know, she hadn't had anything to eat. This is not because she's absent-minded wholly. It's in part because she's kind of run off her feet and she's trying to maintain a family of kids who need constant a little bit of their attention and what she's not getting in her life and it comes up again and again is that attention i uh, so many points where it's just a tiny little line that says you know um here's one between brilliantly dressed women who had gone there to kill time and eat candy and display their gaudy attire she's in a certain sense she is observing them as being gaudy, and not, and not thinking of herself that way, but she's eating the same candy as the gaudy lady <laughs> next to her oh. is watching the play. But she's kind of pretending, I think, in a way, to live this this high class lifestyle. So w- w- you said that this magazine was for middle class people, and I agree. But it's not just middle class people; it's middle class aspiring higher. And that, and so when I get a student reading this story and not seeing all the things that I'm seeing, it's often because they haven't had this kind of impoverishment that has suddenly come over them. An impoverishment, of, as you say, of time as well as money. So where did this money come from? It doesn't say, right? She found herself the unexpected possessor. Did her husband win at gambling and gave her some of it? Or did an aunt die? And give her uh, $15 in her will. We don't know. doesn't really matter. But she had a plan that was going to just modestly improve her children's attire. And instead of doing that, she abandons that plan accidentally. But then it just keeps going and indulges herself. So I see it like there's a, a tension between the consumerism aspect as being a, an outlet for this as you say, you know, difficult situation women are in at the, in the period. 
but also, you know, I'm not a woman, and I see the same the same attraction of you know nice clothing. It's kind of the opposite of a putting on a hair shirt, you know, to really mm-hmm. um, make yourself um, not interested in the bodily pleasures, but to make yourself interested in the things that are really important. There's no spiritual life for this woman at all, right? It's not that she's unfulfilled as a mother. It's that there's no, there's, there's nothing, there's no escape for her. It's all motherhood. It's all raising children now. And she wants an escape. But she doesn't let herself acknowledge that she wants an escape. I think one of the the crucial things that Chopin is uh, making vivid for us here is that the necessities of a woman, and particularly a woman who does not have her own money, require that she divorce her mind and spirit from her body. Mm -hmm. She goes through motions as if she had no will of her own. She unaware of it, she touches the gloves. Unaware mm-hmm. of it, I mean the stockings. Unaware of it, she's already lying back in the cushioned chair of the changing room. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder whether or not that first line, which you call our attention to, that well, little Mrs. Summers one day found herself the unexpected possessor of $15 she didn't get it from her husband. There's no mention of a husband. There's nobody there who's a partner. There's nobody there who actually supports her life. $15? Did she happen to find it on that cable car? Did she touch, uh, did she see a a wallet on the street? Mm. This is, did she in fact take it and divorce her act from the moral recognition of herself being a thief, just as she does not acknowledge that she is, from the standpoint of her own better judgment, stealing the time from her children Mm -hmm. and stealing the time from her family. She is being driven into doing things that she herself would not want to do for the lack of money, for the lack of autonomy. I think, though, that this story makes clear by never showing us any woman who can earn her own money except a clerk serving others, Mm. that this is, in general, the condition of women. And if they have enough money not to notice it, that doesn't mean it's not their condition. They're just happily fed with entertainment and candy. Mm -hmm. To them, crying becomes a pleasure. Not to little Mrs. Summers. I agree. Um, I I think that's really interesting. I didn't consider that she may have stolen it, but um, thinking about that, um, I there was a an MP, a member of Parliament, who was found to have shoplifted a diamond ring. He was a gay man, <laughs> um, and understanding how a member of Parliament would do that, you know, given that they have a, a decent salary. It's yeah. because there's something going on in their life wrong. Something is going wrong because it's yes. not a lack of money, right? It's a lack of something else. And I, I called it spiritual. Um, I'm not a spiritual guy, but <laughs> I see that this is like it's, it's, it's a way of she is, as you say, divorcing. And that's a nice word for it herself from her, her children in this case. I don't get the sense that 
she's feeling constant guilt throughout this story, but I believe she is. I I get the sense she is sort of indulging in this in this uh, spree, uh, in self indulgence spree, in order to hide from those feelings because she's, as you say, she's put herself into this life somehow. She got married somehow. She has four children. They all have needs. She they need sailor caps. <laughs> the boys need their own caps. They their socks always are looking shabby. Wouldn't it be great for once for them to and she never says, "Oh, what about me? What about my needs?" But that's how she acts. Her body acts for her. And she just goes with it. So, yeah, thinking of that money as being stolen um as opposed to, you know, uh finding it uh in a place it's not an insubstantial amount of money at this time right this is uh more like a couple hundred dollars than it is uh uh 15 dollars today and so the things she spends the money on are upper middle class uh pleasures not lower middle class pleasures and she seems to be teetering on the edge of of you know not having enough all the time but especially perhaps of time for her she didn't notice that she hadn't eat any, eaten anything until she thought back and when she does get home normally what does she eat whatever's there that's sad it is and and that is one of the reasons i think that fridan was able to talk about this being a, a problem that has no name because mm. it was a problem that depended upon not only the overt silence of those who suffer from it, but the internalized silence of those who suffer from it. I think you're right. She feels guilt, but she's not willing to name it as guilt to herself mm-hmm. because then she'd have to do something about it. And for once, she wants something for herself. There is something that cannot be spoken. And yet, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.